You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Before. 
Um, I think as humans, we're always going to need to, leave, to learn how to grieve and mourn. Um, and so this was basically me learning tools to handle uh, the day in, day, day out uh, process of, of living with a loss and uh, learning to, to love and find joy again through it. So. I will start with the poem that, that you read a line from, if you don't mind. All right. Instead of dying, you adopt 100 cats, and then you adopt one more cat, and then you adopt the next cat. You adopt all the cats. At night, your apartment rattles with claws and fur. On the back of each cat, you place a small monitor to measure their purring, and then you synchronize their purring. Knowing full well that cats dream our lives, you also synchronize their sleep. You amass them all into a bevy of knowing, coaxing their alpha waves into clear veins of telepathy. When they are asleep, it is high consciousness, the grandest meditation. When they are awake, it is mostly chaos. That's good, it was a good sound effect. Instead of dying, you are born first instead of third. You are first born instead of me. And you live the first fragile years of your micro-intense existence inside the complete attention of our parents, fully moored in the ballast of their parent eyes, being the baby of the golden squared carpet and the window rainstorm and the song sewn from the sound of your sleep. You wear the first clothes. You set the first standards. You become that which would be compared to, watching from a solid place of self as the rest of us scream into your house, our hands smaller than yours, our mouths like Yukon drafts, filling with the air of your fully formed words. Instead of dying, you adopt all the cats and distill their purring into a liquid. This takes weeks under the camouflage canopy in a forest of Kentucky coaxing the vibration up from monitors on their fur and into the copper tubing until it condenses into almost crystallized wavelengths. The cats are very happy. Their purring creates a tincture that soothes internal organs. It sings each organ's specific music. It is a spirit that changes by constellation, although the FDA claims that this statement has not been evaluated as though evaluation always determines worth. Um, I was also writing what I call mirror poems. It's a form I made up because I'm a poet. Um, and it's basically, I had, a, I had a lot of poems that didn't feel finished. And through a process of editing them, I found that um, I suddenly saw that maybe they could flip over the other side and become another version of that same poem. And so I would transfer the words exactly over, and then I'd edit those words. Um, and what I loved about this is that uh, surprising things happen inside a form. You kind of get out of your own consciousness and your own you know, mentality. And uh, I found you know, things that I didn't know I was still mourning about Ryan. I found um, surprises and joys all the way through it. So I'm going to read a couple of these. Days I accept the bed as cold anchor. Days I accept the moving fur of the room. 
Days full of filth accepted, days of gunk. Days like holding the Google Street Maps figure squirming over land, not letting it go. Days where I actually do this at work. I hold the Google Street Maps figure over the place where you died. I find the exact street in Denver and hold the little figure above it. I feel sick to be here, even just in street view but I do it because it seems like being close to you, because a picture of this place is also a picture of you. Here's the opposite page. I bed the accepting these days, angered cold as a moving acceptance. Days in fur, filthy and full, days rooming with days, in the gunk of accepting. I Google the holding, the squirming feeling, a figure mapped on the street letting no land over it. Where for days I go to work like this, doing actual pacing over your figure, mapping streets, grueling, holding, I find where you died. Your figure I hold, Denver floating in streets above it. I feel sick to be here, even just in street view, but I do it because you are close to being like here. It seems that this place is the place I pick to pick you up, pick you up, just so. Maybe the spider loves me as much as my dog loves me, but I don't recognize it in relation to my visual requirements. The dog's face is like my face and the spider's isn't. What I'm trying to say is maybe I should give the spider a chance. I allow it into our house, name it Bruce, let it live. Later, I call my senator and cry. My senator seems so distant these days. <laughs> what is a relationship with a senator supposed to feel like? I am guessing not this. I don't even know what my senator does for me. I feel like I have to do everything myself. And that's about Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read two more from the mirror section. Maybe one more. Yes, alien life forms exist and they are human consciousness. Yes, alien life forms exist and they are your thoughts. Yes, alien life forms exist and are your thoughts and therefore go undetected. The best way to survive on an alien planet is to go undetected or convince the current inhabitants that you're one of them. Are you your thoughts? Do you feel separate from your thoughts? Do any other animals make plastic thermoses? This is ridiculous, say my thoughts. Quit looking at us. Just quit it. <laughs> Anytime I try to look at my own thoughts, it's like, a, it's like no, 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 we're not different. We're not separate. Um, I have a little game I'd like to play. Um, part of this book is a collection of sort of disparate lines. Um, when my daughter was in between the ages of like three and kind of like five or six, she was basically like a poetry machine. So she was learning language and also learning how the world works. And she just constantly said things that blew my mind. Um, and I was writing them down a lot, and, but losing the papers, so I was writing it down. And so I decided to create a secret Twitter account, which I called Little Bello, um, and keep her, all of her quotes in it. And that account ended up also keeping quotes like that I had been finding when reading books about grief and mourning. 
and uh, quotes from my um, grief counselor as well. My daughter has since um, copyrighted everything she says. <laughs> she said this to me the other day. And I don't know if any of you are intellectual property lawyers or know that law, but I'm pretty sure I, it, I'm pretty sure I own these now. So. I was like, lawyer up, we're going at it. Um, but the game is, is that you'll come up to the front and I will read lines and you get to choose whether a child said it or an adult. And as a prize, I have these uh, broadsides that I created from one of the poems. Oh, so, as a prize, I will I will give one of these broadsides. These broadsides are also, uh, for anyone who buys a book, it also comes with a broadside as well, so. But would anyone like to come up and play the child-adult game? Yes. All right, we're done. <laughs> All right, so one, there's no way to lose. I had a dream last night that my body spoke to me, but all it said was drink more water. That's right, it was my dream. <laughs> really boring dream. <laughs> I know, but like, I was like, can you tell me anything else? Like, how you work? How, how do you? I know. Well, like, how did it make a human? Like, I was like, I didn't give you any instruction, but uh, and I don't listen to my body. I don't drink enough water. So there you go. Black. Um, next one. Black holes are where the milk valley dies. That's right. Child, she said that to me in the car while we were listening to NPR. I was like, what? I had to pull over. I was like, what? what you said? Wow. Tell me more. She was like, are we going to get cookies? I was like, oh, I lost it. Lost it again. The floor is stuck. It needs to let the rainbow in. Child, yes. Trying to figure out what a prism is. I know, right? And it should let the rainbow in. Before the thinking is the knowing, the thinking is added to the knowing. That's right, my grief counselor. Yeah. All right, one more. You're close. You've gotten them all right, which is new, right? <laughs> usually, usually people really mess up. You know. All right. Um, let's do this one. They got out of the harbor just in time, but they couldn't get out of their minds. Oh, that was a child setback. Wow. And like, what does it mean? I thought, is that from like another lifetime? And she wouldn't tell me. Teachers pinning certificates of participation on the gravestones. That was me, yes. I was really sad in when your head hurts, your head falls asleep. Child, yes. Mm -hmm. May all beings be free of suffering, including me, including me. That's me. The child, the child with the yeah. There you go, you won. No way! <laughs>
So there's one other game to play. It's just, it's not even really a game. Um, I have conversations between me and my daughter in here, and I need someone to read for me. Um, do you want to come up and do that? All right. That would be great. Or you can play the child battle game, but this one's cuter. Uh, I'll do the reading for you. All right, great. That's what I love do you want to come around this way, and we'll use this mic? Thank you. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be reading for L. Okay. All right. So I will read this one. One time I was eating my lunch. And? And what? Is that the whole story? Yes. That is the only story I have. <laughs> What's that face? It's a mad face of no scissors. <laughs> oh, this is my line. There's a show about the sun and the moon. Oh, really? What's that show called? It's called Space. <laughs> I love you. Me neither. <laughs> and then, what's that? That's the place of worship. Oh, is that where we go to make our wish? And then I wrote, what are you writing about, the kid says. You, I'm writing about you, I say. Thank you. You did it. Which Wife, 
villanelles and pantoons evoke fluid incantations, offering spells of supplication, affirmation, consternation, and resignation. Uh, lush with layered meanings, Petrosino's poems demand to be read and reread, uh, like a good wine. The words should be savored, uh, rolled on the tongue, tasted again and again in careful sips in order to sample each lovely subtle note. Uh, please help me welcome Kiki. Thank you so much. Um, thanks, Lauren, for letting me be your road trip buddy and navigator on our extravaganza that we are just finishing now. Um, it's been wonderful to travel from Brooklyn to various places in Massachusetts. We went to the Yankee Candle Store together, <laughs> which is not on the original itinerary, but could not be avoided or postpone any longer. Um, it's also wonderful to be reading uh, with my, you know, before my family, which is actually quite rare because I'm usually just always elsewhere. Um, my mother is here and she told us our first stories and sang our first songs and so, you know, it's always good, I think, to give back some stories to that first person who spoke. So. I'm going to read now from a little project called Black Genealogy. It's a little chapbook that was published um, in November by a small press called Brain Mill Press. They had asked me to write some poems, so I wrote the poems. Um, and they are written as a result of some research that I'm doing into my family history, like deep family history, looking into Virginia history and looking at my own ancestors to find out what they were up to, where they were among the free and enslaved communities there. Um, so I'd written the poems, and then I got an email from Lauren. And Lauren said, I am drawing poetry comics. Do you have a poem that I can make into a poetry comic? And I said, I have an entire chapbook <laughs> that I would love for you to draw and think about. And so she did, um, she did the cover art. Um, and she did some poetry comics of these poems. So I'll read some from here. This is in Manassas. Please, would you tell me, you ask the cashier a little timidly, for you're still not sure it's a good idea to speak to anyone at the battlefield shop. Why that man is grinning like that. He's playing a Confederate general today, says the cashier, and that's why. You say, I didn't know Confederate generals always grinned. In fact, I didn't know Confederate generals could grin. They all can, says the cashier, and most of them do. You are on a train, and your ancestors are in the quiet car. The quiet car is locked with a password you can't decrypt. You're a professional password decryptor, and your ancestors are professional demolition experts. You're wearing black tactical gear, and your ancestors are wearing black tactical gear. You're moving back through the train, slamming doors open, and your ancestors are ahead of you, laying small explosive charges in your path. When your ancestors blow up the quiet car, you escape through a window hatch. 
You climbed to the top of the train and your ancestors repelled down the sides. You're repelling down one side of the train and you glimpse your ancestors above you again leaping from car to car. You cling to the train and your ancestors lift right off the roof with the help of multiple jetpacks. And lo, your ancestors are hundreds of slow snake doctors. And lo, your ancestors intensively spinning. The train enters a tunnel and the train exits a tunnel. You, on the other hand, have been missing for some time. The research for this collection and also for my next book that will probably be out sometime in 2020 um, has been kind of a conversation between me and the landscape of Virginia and also the spirits of these ancestors who I think are aware that I am looking for them. <laughs> and like, you know, things were so fraught, especially in Virginia after the war, that it became clear to me that my ancestors probably were, they probably didn't move that far from where they originally were after the war, but they didn't always like create documents or tell people report to the government exactly where they were, and we can understand why. But now, in 2018, I want to know exactly where they were. And so I basically have to you know, ask them if it's okay for me to find out about them, to figure out where they are, or where they might have been. And the answer I get back is, like, <coughs> sometimes it's okay with them, if I find something out. So here's a poem about that. You want to know who owned us and where. But when you type, your searches return no results. Slavery was grown folks' business, then old folks. We saw no reason to hum old master's name to our grandchildren or point out his overgrown gates. But you want to know who owned us and where we got free. You keep typing our names into oblongs of digital light. You plant a Unicode tree and climb up into grown folks' business. You know old folks don't want you rummaging here, so you pile sweet jam in your prettiest dish. You light candles and pray. Tell me who owned you and where I might find your graves. Little child, where it rests in the acres we purchased. Those days of slavery were old folks' business. The grown folks buried us deep. Only a few of our names survived. We left you that much, sudden glints in the grass. The rest is grown folks' business, we say. Yet, you still want to know who owned us, where. Okay, I'll switch now to Witch Wife, totally different project. Let me tell you people something. The women in my country, they are going into the yard with pots and spoons to bang at crows. Always this, because crows will eat every fruit from the trees and then nothing left. So the women bang, they yell in a big voice every morning, but crow is not afraid of woman. It will come back tomorrow. Crow is like, you bring pot and spoon, I do not care. You know, do not care. Tomorrow, maybe you leave this city. You take just one small box or one small case, fly to another home, put your box on the floor and ask, this box, who is it? 
lives in my house. You are forgetting all the time. I have seen you wearing the name of your city on the t-shirts, every name more huge, lying across the chest like a creature. Always you complain in your small clothes. You complain when the rain is not stopping, but also no rain. This complaining you do is just the ghost of the house you leave for another house. You don't remember. But in my country, we take the young asparagus in March when it walks on the hills. Asparagus is like the persons we have loved, standing in the house of our parents. I am living here for many years now, but I do not forget my mother in the yard, my sister with her spoon. I do not weep in your way of ghosts, that's all. That poem was inspired, basically the, per the title and the last line are basically how my Italian grandfather would begin and end everything that he wanted to like say. He would have these mini monologues where he would be like, let me tell you people something. The screen door is broken. Or like, let me tell you people something. The garden, you need to redo it, you know? And then at the end he would say, that's all. <laughs> you know? And it was sort of like, that was the, that was the fact. Um, and so I, re I always remember him and how he would talk. So I wanted there to be a poem that was sort of channeling his voice a little bit. 21. Journal, mixtape, leather coat, silk scarf painted with caduceus, Luna Park, broom flowers, ferry boat, ticket stub, autobus 25. Birthstone anklet, white Peugeot, Journal, mixtape, letter coat. Perseid shower, bear paw charm, Luna park, broom flowers, ferry boat. Thumb ring, tank top, lucky coin, birthstone anklet, white Peugeot. Pasta shooter, freckled arms, Perseid shower, bear paw charm. Campfire, windsurf, sudden wine, thumb ring, tank top, lucky coin, olive orchard, sunflower farm, pasta shooter, freckled arms, yogurt with apricots, coca light, campfire, sudden wine, windsurf, olive orchard, sunflower farm, laundry, terrace, sting concert, feather earrings, volcano hike, yogurt, apricots, coca light, green yellow sunset, fever sleep, Terrace, laundry, sting, sting. <laughs> okay, I'll read two more and then we'll do, well, Lauren will come back up and we'll, we'll have our discussion. I married a horseman for his straight jaw and dark jackets for he gave me his ring to wear as a cinch. My markings he called faint star, white boot, and drew a line of rain down the side of my cheek. I married him for the silence in his speech, for his black kerchief, all the time he drew, and in this drawing we married. Now I live in the timber scent and tall smoke of his shadow. Evenings he returns to me from his work, with his fine coat altered in frost. This house has no doors. We pass each other, crossing our necks in hello. I wrote that for my husband, Philip, and one of the first things he told me about himself, like literally the night we met, 
And she was like, Philip means lover of horses. Um, and so he is a horseman. Okay. And then this poem that I'll end with for the moment is called Doubloon Oath. By dead gal or stove bones, by rainbow or red bird, red bird or cracked spine, by silk wrap or jaw jaw, by cold bodice, blush wing, tick tick or sunk ship, by tipped arrow, glass bite, by weird catch or take that, by chopped mountain, slick house, boat neck, boat neck or gloss hog, striped awning, gold lawn, by what's that or so much, without me or full prof, full prof or nunchucks, Blood orange, brain gob, time kill, or toy star. By black doll, or briar thorn, beg beg, or goo-gaw. By sweet meat, or gunlock, or old mead, or dreadnought. By weakness, or white cap, or grief bacon, work song. By field work, or field mix, slagged field, or steel kilt. By bone bruise, or knee sock, I get my gift. Thank you. Take a sip of your coffee. And I took a sip of my coffee, and he said, "Was it? Was that good?" And I said, "Yeah." Was, and he said, "Explain it to me." And I said, "It tasted good. It felt warm when I swallowed. You know, I, I really like coffee." And he said, "There's." He said, "There. There's your joy." And we talked about it a lot about how, um, even in like the very worst of times where I was had a, I was nauseous and sick and full of pain and 
um, crying. And then there, even in those days, there were little bits of joy um, woven into even the deepest of that suffering. And that completely changed the way that I, I saw the world, really. Um, the other thing that he taught me was, in order to notice the joy and feel the joy, I also had to feel the pain um, fully and not uh, covered up with like, you know, not numb myself out, not covered up with, you know, like substances or that I had to sit with the pain uh, all the way through. And, and once I was able to do that, it was like a miracle. Like I, I felt joy more too, um, which is such a strange, um, I don't know, just equation that I never knew was there. And so, and it gave me sort of a courage to continue living and continue going on in life. And um, I've I just used that ever since. Uh, so, yeah, I really appreciate all that that Lauren said. And for me, since I'm looking at some really fairly um, fairly unpleasant. American history when it comes to slavery and the Civil War and things like that. Um, for, for me, the intense part has been realizing that my own ancestors were not exempt somehow from these big historical events or from these big systems. And, um, you know, my mom has come with me on some of our research trips. That has helped me actually, like, you know, when, when you're kind of going through a record and you see, like, that your own ancestor was gave birth to, to three sons and at least two of them were in an enslaved circumstance, um, that starts to seem really heavy and dark and you can kind of like tip forward in your chair and maybe go into the into that dark place. But then it's nice to have your own mother there and and know that actually, you know, it's not as simple to say that everything worked out or something, but it's life still continued, you know. And they were able to get through that circumstance. And so the work of writing and doing the research is the is like, I hope, a healing work and an honoring work. So, you know, you, for me, I've been trying to use my own literacy to like read these records and read these names and that probably nobody has spoken in maybe many generations and, um, and think about them and think about what happened um, because there, there is going to be a light, a lightness and a joy in recovering that. Oh, um, and I'm recovering that previously lost history. It's a good question. Yeah, great, yeah. great question. Thank you. Yeah. Kind of in the same vein, um, and and Lauren, you answered it a little bit, I think. And my my question is. Do you find that when you write about sad or dark things in your mind, mm -hmm. does it make you sadder for that day or the next few days, or do you find it more cathartic? Mm -hmm. I think we can both answer this too, right? Um, so uh, for me, it was extremely painful to write about Ryan. And uh, this, the art on this book was the first piece of art or, Ryan I, or writing I did about him. And it was very early on afterward, and uh, I worked on it in a room in my house, and I remember feeling physically ill even going near the room. But I felt like that was a sign of something that needed to be paid attention to. 
And when I was done with the work, I felt lighter. Um, I don't know why. And it started happening with poems where I would just sort of like puke out a poem um, and then feel lighter. Uh, the, the mirror poem that I read about the Google Street Maps, I mean, that was something I really did at work and then I was like, that was confusing and weird what I just did. I think I need to write down what's happening. And the mirror side of that poem revealed something to me that I didn't even know I was sad about, which was I just wish I had been there with my brother. Uh, you know, I had sort of gotten over the fact that he had, not gotten over, but I had accepted the fact that he died and the poem revealed that something else I was upset about is I just wish I had been there, you know? And uh, that was a hard poem to write. It's still actually like a hard poem to read. I actually told my editor when we were editing the book, I said, I don't want to edit that page anymore. I was like, we're done. Because every time I'd edit it, I'd start crying. It was just such a, and, but you know what? I don't cry anymore while I read it. I'm, so I, I've processed it and that's a gift. I feel like that's a gift from our like animal body and from nature is that we've been given tools to process this stuff so that I'm not carrying that pain around for the rest of my life, so. I agree. I think like the poem can contain a lot of things. I mean, we teach poetry and we teach our students to think about the line and then think about syllables and think about the breath and what the line can, what the line can contain. And really when we are breaking everything down and telling them to, you know, about the technical things that the poem can contain, really those techniques are meant to help the poem contain the emotional subject matter um, or a sound or a memory or the visual like image um, so that you can put it on the paper and, and put it on the poem and in some way not you don't necessarily leave it behind but you let the poem contain it mm -hmm. you know yeah Good question, Mom. Good question. <laughs> so how do you know when you're ready to write a poem? Wow. Uh, well. <laughs> I mean, is it a thing like to yeah. write a poem? And you, when you wake up in the morning, or is it different? Uh, there was one poem. It's not in this book, but I walked to work and walked back. And as I was walking to work, I started thinking about uh, this poem just sort of appeared, this, this sort of thought process, and when I got to work, that was a poem that felt like, kind of like, brain puking in a way. It's such a gross way to explain it, but it just came out, and it was done. But then other poems, um, I write all, I mean, I try to write every day. Um, I've taken a break from that, because there's other stuff going on, but a lot of times in writing every day, stuff comes out and you didn't know it was in there. That's the power of the, you know, we're kind of trapped in these like skulls and then like the sensory input and the writing is a way to kind of, it, it, it pulls that story or whatever narrative you've got going on out and it's a way to sort of cut off that string a little bit. And so a lot of times um, I was keeping a little notebook, especially when I first had my daughter, half those pages were me like being like angry, 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 like why doesn't Ben get up with her, you know, or like, <laughs> like I did, I found pages that just wrote the word angry all the way down the back. Um, and, but then I would find pages with poems on them, so I never knew, you know, was it going to be me just complaining or, you know, upset, or was it going to be a poem, and, and I never knew, so the practice is part of it too, just sitting down and doing it, which is hard, yeah.
Yeah, writing practice is really hard, especially if you have like a job and family. And like, it seems like the most indulgent thing you can do sometimes, especially with the world the way it is, is to say, you know, well, I wrote a poem today. Like, it never seems to be the most practical thing that you can do. So, I mean, I actually would like to work more on developing a, a writing practice. It seems like every semester is different, and so your writing practice then has to change and, and shift. But for me, like, on an individual poem level, there's usually some kind of sound or rhythm of the first line that I feel um, comes together, and then when that happens, or I could get a title, for example, like the Let Me Tell You People Something title. You give yourself a little assignment and say the poem has to begin this with this and end with that, and working with traditional forms has also helped me develop a writing practice. Um, uh, I wrote like probably 18 or 19 villanelles for for which wife, which is a highly repetitive form. So repetition helped me because I didn't have to write everything from scratch. Um, but I was able to write. I was able to write it and almost and map it out almost. And when I thought about it, each poem like a schematic, then I could fill it in or something, and it, that allowed me to write them. Good question. Thank you. Okay, so Lauren, you talked a little bit about like the notebook that you carry around, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you um, had any thoughts or could talk a little bit more about like writing things versus typing on a computer mm -hmm. and kind of like if you do both or how that influences what you're writing. Mm -hmm. um, the notebook was, uh, I kept it next to my bed and with a new, uh, with a new baby, I found there was just no time to do anything else, especially when she was very young. And so it was a small, like, moleskin notebook about this. And I just said, fill a page each day. And it had date on it. And so I knew that there was, like, an end to it. And um, I, I did like the handwriting part of it because it could happen quicker. Like, I didn't even have time to, like, pull out my phone or do something. Um, but I work in all different ways. Like, the Twitter account surprised me. Um, you know, I started using it. I hadn't used Twitter before. And then... I realized like Twitter is um, a form. Like it, so it, I think any poetic form is a constraint, right? I mean, a constraint with rules. And Twitter is constraint with rules. And I think people are on Twitter and they don't know they're writing poetry and they are. <laughs> uh, you know, because like you, ha you have to change the way you're expressing things. And I, so that was a, so it all was just a way to get, um, stuff down. I, I prefer by hand and then transferring over one because something happens in that transfer that wouldn't happen otherwise if you wrote directly in it. So, do you have I mean, I did start bullet journaling and then I found it excruciating. Because <laughs> um, I felt like I could never live up to the expectations of like what what you're supposed to do with a bullet journal. You're supposed to really fill it up. And I felt like I couldn't do enough handwriting to do that. So I bought like a really small bullet journal, um, a small one. And I turned it the other way, like to landscape mode or whatever. And uh, what I've been doing with it, I'm just keeping like a log of quotations. Like so when I read some of these history books or things that are not, that are relevant to my research, but they're not produced to be poems, I take a sentence or I take a quotation or an image and I like turn the notebook basically to make it not feel like it is a notebook and just like make a flashcard out of out of that one quote. So I've started trying to do that. 
Yeah, you got to psych yourself out, too, because there's part of my brain that never wants to write again. Yeah. <laughs> it thinks it's hard, and it doesn't want to do it, yeah. you know? Yeah, so. yeah. Mm -hmm. totally. I do have a question, yeah. Um, I was wondering uh, how being on this tour has, like, affected the two of you, right? Because I'm sure often you're, like, writing alone by yourself on paper or whatever, and maybe you don't necessarily envision reading them out loud, but here you are, like rock stars, you know, <laughs> singing, yeah. singing your songs over and over for different audiences. So, like, has, how has that affected how you feel about your poems? Or Well, I've loved this. And, like, this is the first time I've ever done a tour with another poet. Yeah, same. And usually it's, I'm just by myself traveling, you know, um, and living out of a suitcase or something for the for the time, and it, you feel like a fake rock star because because you're like, you know, I'm living in a hotel room, but but you're like I'm a poet. I have books. It's not you don't have any cool instruments or any cool stuff, um, and so it's kind of also hard to be kind of alone on the road and like away from family and things like that. Um, so it's been really nice to have the companionship of another poet um, to to talk to on the road and then process what just happened at the previous location and talk about what's going on and what our writing practices are like. And there's just a lot of note comparing where we're kind of like, my life is like this, what's your life like? Yeah. And a lot of times there's, there's overlap, there's a lot of overlap. So you feel supported by community and by friends and some of our friends from Iowa are here now and it's just, I've left each location feeling really happy, you know? Um, and I think happiness is important for poets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we started off, we've been probably all together in the car, what, 15 hours yeah. total or more, a little more than that. And, uh, you know, we started off talking about politics and the state of the nation. And we just, we have devolved basically into like straight up gossip, like, <laughs> which is awesome. You know, other, I mean, but we also have been talking about our families and children and Actually, we go back and forth between gossip and then like a really deep conversation on like our roles as writers and our, you know, these things. So, and I, I feel like I, um, we have altered our readings. Like, there's certain, there, uh, when some readings there aren't any children present and sometimes they are. And I do all, all alter things I read. So, and, uh, um, if I, you know, notice an energy or a crowd, if it's a smaller venue, then, but I always do the game because that's the only that's the only way I think anyone gets anything out of it for some reason. I don't know. I'm like, I have the game, so if everything else fails, the game will come through and people will be happy. So happy. Yeah. Were there more questions? We can move to the closing this. I just remembered I had an extra mic somewhere somewhere. Um, but if anyone, does anyone have one last question, or shall we move, we can move to closing poems, and then afterwards, um, there'll be time to chat with the poets, and just, I mean, as you probably realize, we're selling um, their books, so please purchase their books uh, if you don't already own them, so um, I think this is everyone, yeah, so if each of you just wants to read. Yeah, I'll just read two more poems. Um, the end of here. Um, 
Instead of dying, we go back in time, and I get to take away all the pain I caused you. Instead of dying, we go back in time, and I'm allowed, somehow, to see myself causing you pain and to stop it. Instead of dying inside, you aren't dying inside. Instead, I get to say I'm sorry, and then even before I get to say I'm sorry, I get to prevent doing the things for which I'm apologizing, for ignoring you, for teasing you in front of your friends, for trapping you, little brother, in a kennel once, in the basement several times, in headlocks and sleeper holds, in confusion, in all the ways those in power trap the weak. Instead of dying, you get to be free of the worst parts of me. Instead of dying, you join a dog sledding team in Quebec. Each September, you set off a red stocking cap on your choppy hair, boots whacking the pine board planks of the sled into the brisk and opulent distance. Returning every four months, you bring us wood carvings of gnomes and rhizomes, geodes, crystals, and maple sugar treats. Your beard becomes a sketchy palimpsest of your transformation. The terrible clawing pain that had once dug itself into your back now begins to quiet slowly until one morning, midway through your spring season, you wake up to find all of that endless, draining, life-defeating pain is gone gone. You pull your overalls up cautiously and then set out into what we will all look back on as the beginning of your relief. Letters from you smell like wood smoke, sprinkling salt on my desk as I open them one by one and read. The child was in the woods, which woods pertain to glory. The team swept through, measuring the crinolines of leaves. Humming in the woods, the child slipped through blades of rain, which rain fell down in prayer again. The team raised shields against the acorn glitz and swelling bark. One knelt to track the beetle with its carapace of sun. All this time, the child was in the woods, her cells dividing in medallions. She hummed, and half her face tangled in the trees, which trees were tongues and yarns of fire. Still, the team pressed on through rows of violets crowned like crumbling teeth, through glistered gaps the light licked over. Anywhere a buttercup could fit, this kid could be. They hissed through slits of mics that cracked and clung. The team nodded one by one. Even so, the child curled deep in her rookery. There she dreamed of sitting in a painted room, a tiny chair and table planted there. The child dreamed of sitting in the tiny chair. She had to pluck a harp with many strings. In her dream, she saw two listeners, increments of ivory, bent and silent at the door. I won't be yours, the child sang. No, not yours, then awoke with a scorch in her throat in the woods. Now the team withdrew their robes and instruments. They patted the dark shells of the trees. Sleep, they said. But the child rose without pause, rose without pause from her perch in the woods, from the brawny, tawny woods, 
which realm was deep and oil dark was glory. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.